0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The New ABCs of Myeloma Care, Enhancing Outcomes with CD38 Antibodies, BCMA Immunotherapy, and Unique Bispecific Platforms. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HZN860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming to this program, which, as you can see, is entitled The New ABCs of Myeloma Care, Enhancing Outcomes with CD38 Antibodies, BCMA Immunotherapy, and Unique Bispecific Platforms. We certainly appreciate that you have lots of choices for your education as well as entertainment. Tonight's panelists are Dr. Noah Bieren to my right, and to my further right, Dr. A.J. Nuka, and I'm Bob Laske. I have the pleasure to serve as the moderator. Just to give you a little bit of an overview of recent history in multiple myeloma, there's been a lot of exciting developments since 2015 around mostly immunotherapy, including antibody platforms and CAR T-cell therapies. Over on the very left in the timeline was the approval of CD38 antibody in the form of daratumumab and SLAMF7 in the form of elotuzumab, which was back in 2015. A few years later, there were expanded indications for DARA, both alone and in combination, as well as subcutaneous dosing. And there was the initial approval of the second CD38 antibody, which was esotuximab. Then in 2021, there was expanded approval for isatuximab. We had belantimab mafidotin, which was the first antibody drug conjugate, and the first BCMA-targeted therapy. And then most recently, we've had a couple of CAR T cells approved, including cell as well as Idacel. And then teclistimab, which is a BCMA bispecific antibody. As you probably know, there's one major update here shown on the bottom left, which is the fact that Blantamab has been withdrawn from the U.S. market because of results from the DREAM3 study, which we'll review later. But I think there's still good hope that it may be reintroduced based on additional findings. And this will not be the end. This is only the beginning of the story because we know there are other BCMA CD3 bispecifics that are coming. Also, although BCMA is a great cell surface target for myeloma, there are other proteins that are fairly specific to myeloma on the cell surface that can be targeted both by bispecifics and by CAR T cells. And of course, there's a lot of hubbub about maybe using CAR T-cells and potentially by specifics as well earlier rather than four or more prior lines of therapy, which are the current approvals. One of the reasons that continuing education is important is shown here, which is the fact that even though we have a lot of these great therapies, including CD38 antibodies for both frontline as well as for second-line therapy, the uptake has been a little bit slow. You can see that on the left for patients who are transplant eligible only about 2% of them in the 2016 to 2021 period were getting monoclonal antibodies as at least part of their therapy And that number was similarly small over on the right side for patients who were ineligible for stem cell transplant. And you'll hear today a lot of the data about why I think we all feel that earlier use of these antibodies is really going to have a huge benefit for patients. And sometimes the concern has been that if you use your best therapies upfront, you won't have anything left. But with a lot of this BCMA and GPRC5D and other targeted therapies, I think we would probably all agree that we don't have to worry about that anymore. We also know that patients who have multidrug refractory disease still have a huge unmet medical need. This is for right now where BCMA-targeted therapies are. As you can see in this real-world analysis of triple-class refractory myeloma, triple-class being proteasome inhibitors, immunomodulatory drugs, and CD38 antibodies unfortunately a proportion of those patients were not able to receive a new line of therapy some of that is probably because unfortunately some of them are a little bit too sick and others may be simply because they did not have at that time very good options and for those that are able to get additional therapy even there the outcomes are not very good as you can see with median progression free survivals that are on the four Point four month range and a median overall survival that's less than one year. And certainly those are numbers that we would all like to improve upon. So these are our goals for today's presentations. First, we'd like to provide you with insights on evidence supporting the use of antibody-based and CAR-T therapies in myeloma. I think all of us will share guidance with you on strategies for integrating the established emerging antibodies as well as the new antibodies and cellular therapies into patient care and also help you get the skills you need to address practical aspects of care when using these including the right dosing, safety, patient counseling, as well as prophylactic care We would like to especially thank the Health Tree Foundation, which was formerly known as Myeloma Crowd, for supporting patient-centric communities enabled with data tools to improve patient outcomes and deliver faster cures. You may know that this was established by jenny Alstrom, who's in the audience here tonight if you'd like to speak with her either now or later and you probably know that she herself is a myeloma patient and they've really created a wonderful community to look at multiple myeloma patients and by the way they're expanding to other diseases as well but they put together community events informational podcasts Round tables among experts to try to come up with consensus recommendations and guidelines. You can have a directory of specialists if you would like to get a consult with a myeloma specialist to supplement the care that you're getting from your local hematology oncology doctor. There are myeloma coaches. There is a Health Tree University, so you can learn as much about myeloma as you would like to, to help you along your journey. And there's a clinical trial finder, as well as apps, journaling, and social media opportunities. HealthTree Cure Hub also accelerates research by providing a portal where patients can upload their data, which really helps to facilitate first of all data gathering for research projects and also sharing of data if a patient wants to go to a different specialist. We as doctors can just log on and look up information from elsewhere. They have one of the most comprehensive myeloma data sets available today with over 10,000 participating patients, many of whom are uploading their data in a real-time basis. And this is really a really nice set of validated data sets, which include labs, genetics, prior therapy, patient-reported outcomes, and demographics. So with that introduction, I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Noah Bieren for the A portion of our ABCs of myeloma. And as you know, Dr. Bieren is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine in Hackensack, New Jersey. Dr. Bieren, take it away.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you to HealthTree, to Peerview, and our industry supporters for letting us uh, put together this educational session. And um, I'm glad you showed those curves about the poor outcomes of our refractory patients and I think that soon those curves are gonna be irrelevant and new as we set the new bar. And that's where these antibodies come in. So I'm gonna review uh, the use of monoclonal antibodies in the upfront setting, in the maintenance setting, and in the early relapse setting. So how do CD38 antibodies work? CD38 is a receptor on the surface of plasma cells. It's on the surface of both neoplastic and healthy plasma cells. It also um, covers the surface of red blood cells. And we have two CD38-directed monoclonal antibodies that are approved. They work somewhat similar, but they also have somewhat different off-tumor effects. So the on-tumor effects include CDC, ADCC, apoptosis, and the off-tumor effects vary somewhat between the two agents. Daratumumab may have a little bit more immunosuppressive effects on the Tregs, may promote T-cell expansion and activation, while esetuximab may have a little bit more immunomodulation or inhibition of ectoenzyme activity. So the NCC guidelines are very broad in their recommendations for upfront therapy, and that's because we have a whole host of treatment options, some triplets without monoclonal antibodies, and some quadruplets with monoclonal antibodies, both of which result in very profound response rates and um, very deep remissions. Um, So we're going to discuss some of these trials that led to the recommendation of the above Regimens. The Griffin trial was a phase two randomized trial that compared the combination of daratumumab, VRD, versus VRD alone. And you can see that with time, and this is in transplant-eligible patients, response deepens with the quadruplet. So daratumumab certainly adds a deeper remission with each level of remission so at the end of induction after transplant after consolidation and after one and two years of maintenance and you can see that the cr rate at the end of two years of maintenance is about 60 82 uh, percent with the quadruplet compared to 61 percent with the triplet so that deepening of remission is maintained and that's very important because we know that initially you're gonna have a deeper mission, but the question is what happens longer? So durability is much more important and CR and depth of response is important much more as we go out further. And here you can see the robust MRD responses and PFS outcomes with Dara VRD compared to VRD, and sustained MRD is an important surrogate. Now, The regulatory agencies do not accept MRD negativity as a primary outcome, and that's because in myeloma, where we're not curing the disease, it's not exactly a surrogate for survival, and it can be um, variable in its how you determine the method of MRD negativity, but it's in the standard risk population, it's the best surrogate that we have because our standard risk patients are living decades. So it would be very difficult to achieve uh, PFS differences or OS differences in these patient population. And you can see that sustained MRD, MRD negativity with the quad lasting more than 12 months was 44% compared to 13% with VRD alone. And that's assessed by NGS. And here you have the 36-month PFS rate with DARA VRD 88.9%, and that's, I would say, remarkable for patients who are transplant eligible compared to 81% with VRD and a hazard ratio of 046 So now we can look a little bit at the subgroups. Is there any subgroup that's benefiting more or less from the quadruplet versus the triplet? And I would say the only two that may be debatable are the high risk and ISS-3 patients for which we're not sure if there is quite as much of a benefit with the quadruplet compared to the triplet. Now that can be said with any agent because the high risk patients are much more difficult to achieve uh, advantages with any treatment. The Lira study evaluated the combination of Dara VCD followed by daratumab maintenance. It was a single arm study and you can see that and it looked at both transplant and trans, transplant eligible and transplant non-eligible patients in the upfront setting. There were some relapse refractory patients but this, stu- this is focusing on the newly diagnosed. You can see that depth of response was significantly better with the quadruplet, so even without an IMID, the monoclonal antibody adds benefit. What about maintenance? Traditionally, the only FDA-approved agent for maintenance is lenalidomide. Let's look a little bit about what happens when we add or replace lenalidomide with a monoclonal antibody, and you can see that when there is um, daratumumab maintenance, in uh, combination of uh, VTD, Velcade Thalidomide Index, you following, uh, followed by Daratumumab maintenance, the median PFS is significantly better not reached versus 46.7 months with DARA maintenance compared to observation. Now, if you look at the second curve right here, what this is showing is that it really doesn't matter when you receive the daratumumab. So the, this curve represents patients that never received darA. This, these all these curves, which run together, show you patients who had darA either upfront with induction or with maintenance. So do we really need the darA upfront, or if we get it later on, will we have the same results? We don't know the answer to that question. I think we have to do more studies to determine that. And we do have ongoing studies looking at the role of maintenance therapy with daratumumab. This is uh, the dramatic trial, and the study design is gonna be patients after auto-transplant who are randomized to either LEN versus LENDEX, and then it's gonna be MRD-guided. So patients will have MRD assessment, and those who are MRD-negative will then be randomized to either stop maintenance or continue on their assigned maintenance. And those who are MRD positive will continue. So we're hoping that we can either stop maintenance, uh, or we want, obviously we want to stop maintenance in the patients who are MRD negative and see if we can achieve the same results. The GMMGHD7 study looked at the isatuximab uh, CD38 monoclonal antibody with VRD compared to VRD alone. And you can see that patients who received the quadruplet had a significantly higher rate of MRD negativity at the end of induction. And again, we see a deepening of response with the quadruplet. What about high-risk patients? So as we said, standard-risk patients really have very good prognosis, almost no matter what you do. So what are we going to do with the high-risk patients who still relapse almost uh, most within 12 and 18 months without maintenance after an auto transplant? A lot of studies now are focusing just on the high-risk subset. So this study, GMMG concept, looks at just high-risk patients with, and, uh, who are gonna receive isatuximab KRD, in the front line. And you can see that this strategy translated into a deep, rapid response and a two-year PFS rate of 75.5%. You can see that CR rate was 20%. MRD negativity rate was 64%. The Skylark study evaluated ESA-KRD in all risks, standard and high, in transplant-eligible newly diagnosed myeloma. Overall response rate was 100%, and the administration of carfilzomib was in a once-weekly fashion. MRD negativity at 10 to the minus 5 was 43%. PFS percent was 97.9%. So for non-transplant patients, what is the standard of care for upfront treatment? And that is actually uh, changing. And we have a number of recommended regimens uh, in the NCCN guidelines. And we'll review the um, daratumumab triplets and doublets continue to show efficacy even in patients who are not transplant eligible. And the Maya study really changed the standard of care for patients who are non-transplant eligible because this is a very well tolerated regimen for our non-transplant eligible patients, frail patients, um, older patients. Uh, And you can see that the combination of Dara-LendX compared to LendX really provided an excellent remission and a durable remission, and you have a median PFS of 61.9 months in upfront, transplant ineligible. And that is really remarkable for our patients compared to 34.4 months with lend And this is really without dealing with peripheral neuropathy or any of the toxicity that we were used to dealing with in this patient population. The PFS update from Alcyone, this is a combination less used in the United States Dara VMP also showed similar results in that the uh, daratumumab arm showed deepening of response and prolonged PFS compared to the triplet uh, VMP alone, 37.3 versus 19.7 months. What about early relapse? So we again, multiple myeloma really is a whole host of treatment options. It's difficult to choose a treatment option based on the guidelines. If you just look at this, you're gonna be totally confused. So you really need to match the treatment according to the patient. Of course, efficacy is number one, and we're gonna review that. But you also have to think about who's the patient, what are the social circumstances, what are the risks, high risk, standard risk, um, toxicities, which toxicities do you want to avoid, what underlying comorbidities they have. So we'll review some of these regimens. So the history behind monoclonal antibodies in the relapse refractory setting uh, is presented here. Castor and Pollock studies are what initially established intravenous vel- daratumumab in combination with Lendex or bortezomib dext. Those were triplets in early relapse. Then came candor and Apollo, which evaluated Dara plus carfilzomib dex and sub-Q Dara plus pomdex. And we've, oh, we've pretty much moved totally to sub-Q Dara at this point due to less risk of hypersensitivity reaction and convenience. And then on this side, we have isatuximab, and that has also been evaluated in combination with pomalidomide, and in combination with carfilzomib, Icaria and Ikema. And we have elotuzumab, which is a SLAM-F7 monoc- directed monoclonal antibody, and that has been combined both with LENDEX and POMDEX in the eloquent studies. So CANDER, um, which evaluated the combination of daracardex compared to cardex, showed a remarkable uh, median PFS in this patient population, early relapse, median versus 15.2 months median PFS with a hazard ratio of 0.59. And the Apollo study, subcutaneous DARA with POMDEX versus POMDEX alone, again, showed an advantage. So median PFS 24.4 versus 17.6 months. Now, what about our LEN refractory patients? Because many of these patients who are coming out of their first line therapy have been on LEN maintenance for decades, I mean, for years, some, some of them for decades. So we need a regimen that's going to be able to restore image sensitivity or overcome LEN resistance. And you can see that even in the LEN refractory population, we have a clear advantage of the combination of DPD compared to POMDEX. This is the final candor analysis, and you can see that OS benefit was maintained even in high risk. And that is a very important um, piece of information because if we can establish a benefit in high risk population, then most likely that also translates into our standard risk patients. We're just seeing more events, so we see the differences much more quickly than we see with standard risk disease. Isatuximab has been evaluated as well. It's given intravenously, uh, weekly, and then um, twice a month. Uh, and the Ecaria study looked at isa in combination with POMDEX versus POMDEX alone, resulting in a superior median PFS of 11.5 or 6.5 months. And here we have the Ikema study, which uh, so far is showing one of the best median PFS in this Uh, antibody combination, which is not reached versus 19.5 and a hazard ratio of 0.53, which is probably the lowest of all the studies I've presented. And you can see that the uh, the two-year follow-up updated data for PFS showed a median PFS of 35.7 months versus 19.7 months. The longest PFS on a PI-based backbone in relapsed refractory myeloma, 42% reduction of progression or death. So we often use this uh, regimen for high-risk patients. Um, the addition of ESA to CARDEX-improved PFS and depth of response both in early relapse as well as in late relapse, any combination you use later is going to work less effectively than it would if you use it earlier. And then if we look more carefully at the subgroup analysis. Uh, Here, they separated out deletion 17P, translocation 414, and translocation 1416. And you can see that among all of these subgroups, there is still a benefit that does not cross one uh, for these patients, for these high-risk subgroups. Again, this is a subgroup analysis. It's important to evaluate high-risk patients more carefully in prospective trials, but certainly this may be a signal that we have a good efficacy in high-risk patients and that it's an effective regimen. And uh, esetuximab now is going to be, uh, is investigationally uh, being evaluated in the subcutaneous format, which will be much more convenient to our patients if this gets approved. It looks like there's a device and it can be implanted and injected in that manner we have to worry with these monoclonal antibodies about hypersensitivity reactions. They usually occur in the first dose or the second dose. Intravenous daratumumab had a higher rate compared to subcutaneous daratumumab, and isatuximab has similar rate to IV-DARA, maybe a little bit less. And these uh, infusional or hypersensitivity reactions can be mitigated with the use of acetaminophen, diphenhydramine, DEX, methylprednisone. Sometimes we use an H2 antagonist. Sometimes we use Singulair in patients who have uh, reactive airway disease. So we kind of touched on this earlier, but with all of these treatments, how do we pick the right one for the patient um, when there's no head-to-head comparisons of all these regimens? We have to really look at which patient needs which treatment and then we think about all these things. What's the biology of the relapse? Is it a slow biochemical relapse or is it a symptomatic rapidly evolving relapse with renal dysfunction, with uh, plasma cytomata? So you have to think about how quickly do you need a response? What was their response to prior therapy? Are they image sensitive? How aggressive is the relapse? Maybe if, you're, if you have a hypercalcemic patient, you want to give an intravenous treatment, not wait for an oral medication. And then what about performance status, comorbidities? How often can the patient come to the office? What support do they have? Do they have high uh, or pro, uh, diabetes where they're at risk of getting peripheral neuropathy? So all of these have to be considered when picking a regimen.
1: Thanks very much. Excellent presentation, and I would say that even if your mother weren't in the audience. (laughs) But good job, Mom. (laughs) So, we'll have a little bit of a case discussion here to try to get into some details about these concepts. And what we have is an elderly patient with asymptomatic, sorry, symptomatic, newly diagnosed multiple myeloma who is transplant eligible. We're told that this patient has standard risk cytogenetics, no major comorbidities, a good performance status, and is willing to pursue aggressive treatment. So, Dr. Nuka, you haven't had a chance to speak yet. Would you use a CD38 quad in this kind of setting? And is MRD negativity a goal of therapy for you?
3: Thanks, Bob. It feels good to talk. <laughs> <laughs> So, NOAA presenting such good evidence of using the map or map in the upfront setting, there is no reason why it should not. So let me make it a little more clear of why exactly I want the quadruplet in a patient like this. So number, num- number one, historically, if you look at it, look at the treatment patterns that we use for the transplant-eligible younger patients, we have always wanted more drugs in that space. So the best combination, we always need to achieve the balance. Do we want the best bang for the buck? So AMID and PI combination has turned out to be the best combination where you get the depth of response at the same time this is very well tolerable. So we always had in our mind, can we add a fourth agent? And we had done the trials with HDAC inhibitors in the past. We had done trials with ELO2SMAP. We have we've, we've tried all these combinations, but We want the depth to be going much lower and the safety to be not changed, and that balance we have not achieved until the time we saw in the GRIFFIN trial. So what are the numbers that you saw in the GRIFFIN trial? So GRIFFIN trial, so if you think about RVD as a standard of care, RVD is a trial among a patient like this, just the exact patient, living for 10 years is feasible nowadays. If you're aggressive, active, with a regimen like that, we we put, a, put our retrospective analysis of a thousand patients using RVD. Now, can we do more than that? So now, we add data to map versus RVD is data RVD versus RVD is the Griffin trial that Dr. Biran presented. And how did it benefit? We got surrogates. We don't have an overall survival benefit yet. So, but if we wait for the overall survival benefit, the patient that you're treating today will not be benefited. So, we want all surrogates at all times. Surrogate number one the depth of response, which is CR, MRD negativity. And we saw the data. If you treat them right with using a DARA plus RVD combination, four out of the five people are going to get into MRD negativity and stay in MRD negativity. But if you treat with RVD, three out of the five are going to get into MRD negativity at the two year mark. So 60% versus 80%. But for a patient, it is one extra patient. Increasing the odds of being there in that MRD-negativity state is, is, is what a patient should be looking at and what I would be looking for, for for the patient. So with all of those, and clearly those surrogates are already showing that curve difference in terms of when the patient is relapsing. You saw 90% of the patients at the three-year mark still staying in remission, whereas using the RVD, we saw 10% of the patients dropping so all of those make me or allow me to to choose for answer number one uh question number one choosing a data quad in this
1: in this scenario so dr bier maybe you can tackle the second question which is whether there might be some patients in whom a quadruplet might not be appropriate given some comorbid features which we're told this patient is pretty healthy but Who would you not give a quad to?
2: Certainly, we don't want to give uh, a bortezomib-based regimen to anybody who has high risk of peripheral neuropathy. So I include diabetics in that. I include any neurologic symptoms. I include underlying neuropathy of unclear etiology, Um, sometimes... um, You know, certain medication combinations will increase risk of peripheral neuropathy. Uh, You know, bortezomib can be very unpredictable. Uh, Even one dose can cause significant neuropathy. Um, So for those patients, you may say, replace it with carfilzomib, which I think is a great option. Patients I would not give carfilzomib to are those who have uh, impaired ejection fraction, uncontrolled hypertension, or over 75. You have to be careful.
1: Okay. Sounds good. And Dr. Nuka, high risk cytogenetics, you and your team have a lot of experience in this area. So do you use V or K, K being carfilzomib in this setting and why?
3: Great answer. So, going, great question. Going back to the answer of why V versus I guess we're K, anticipating
1: a great answer as well.
3: <laughs> I, if I can satisfy you, uh, it, <laughs> it would be, be nice. So if you're looking at K versus V, so we are a heavily, we heavily use botasmib for a long time for everyone. But there are certain subsets of patients where I would favor K more than the V, and that is that high-risk cytogenetic subset. I'll also explain why. And it's not just using kerfelschma-based regimen. I would also push that CD38 antibody into that space as well. So the reason is we do have the trials called the MASTER trial. MASTER trial was run by Luciana Costa. It It enrolled 120 patients. What this trial looked at was... Can we use the best induction regimen so that you can get the best response possible, and then use MRD to guide our treatment duration so some people can come off treatment? Great idea, but cannot be applicable to all patients, which is cannot be applicable to the high-risk patients. So that study had done KRD plus data for the first four cycles, and what you saw was this MRD negativity rates at 10 to the power of minus five in 80% of the patients after the first four cycles so after the transplant you're seeing such good depths of responses and it's never a problem for the high-risk patient not to achieve the depth of response you always will be able to achieve those depths of responses the problem will be to maintain that response how can you still be able to maintain that response so the study that i was giving about the master they divided all the patients into three groups patients with no high risk abnormalities patients with one high risk abnormality and patients with two high risk abnormalities or, or more so the patients where the fixed duration or the, or the brief time of where you give this induction and you're basing your treatment guidance based on the MRD-negativity is not applicable to those patients that had more than two high-risk features. 58% of the patients were the PFS rate was 58% at two years. So 42% of the patients progressed within that time frame. So we, if we want to do the benefit for these high-risk patients, we cannot let them relapse. We, I presented our, our, our experience with using intensified maintenance today, and what we have seen was the time for a high-risk patient with more than the two high-risk abnormalities, from the time that they relapse to the time that they die, is 10 months. And it is not applicable. We, we can't put that number on everyone, but the goal or, or the message that I'm giving is, you cannot let them relapse. If you're relapsing, you can have 50 other options, but you can't put all those between that first relapse and, and the mortality. And what we had seen time and again repeatedly was when we are able to prevent that relapse, you're able to get that long-term sustainability of those remissions and extend into an overall survival advantage. So that is one trial. The, the concept that the GMMG HTC, uh, the GMMG concept trial that Dr. Beran reviewed used etsutuximab and KRD exactly the same combination in the high risk patients, and you're able to see those depths of responses again seen. And this trial has used combination treatment continuously, and you're able to see at the two year mark, a two and a half year mark, 75% of the patients still maintaining their remission. So. The concept is, number one, you want to use all the agents that you have available for these patients with high-risk cytogenetics upfront, and maintain that remission with whatever you have in that space.
1: And then there's a question, Dr. Bieran, about CD38 maintenance post-transplant. And I'll pull in also a question from the audience here, uh, which is maintenance with daratumumab, how long should a patient stay on it? And what are long-term side effects? Does it preclude other therapies down the road? So I know that's kind of a lot, but you can do it. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's really the same question. And my answer is going to be maybe a little bit provocative, but I'm going to say no. Uh, I don't think that we should be using CD38 maintenance post-transplant for two reasons. One is all those studies that were examined, what happens next? It's not just about PFS1. PFS1 plus PFS2. So your maintenance DARA patients are gonna be DARA refractory or CD38 refractory. So now you're into all these agents that you're gonna discuss in the late relapse setting. So, you know, we don't know, and we're exposing these patients to chronic single agent or even Dara. same, you know, to me it's not a big difference. Um, you know, chronic therapy, and you're gonna have not only toxicity, but you're gonna have uh, resistance and increased heterogeneity of disease. And the other thing we need to focus on, and everybody focuses on MRD, on depth, on disease, getting rid of disease, getting rid of disease, but myeloma is also very much driven by deficiency of the immune system and dysregulation of the immune system. And we, we expose patients to therapy that's constantly lymphodepleting them, increasing risk of infection. Daratumumab, chronic daratumumab, causes a lot of infections that we are not used to seeing. We see kind of wacky infections, viral infections, fungal infections in people who have been on it for a long time, you see it. So you need to be aware of what you're doing to the immune system and to the patient. So I would say no maintenance, Use the DARA when you need the DARA.
1: Fair enough, and as you pointed out, there are ongoing trials that will hopefully answer these questions more fully. We do have another case to discuss, and we'll borrow a little bit of time because I was able to finish the introduction more quickly. We have an adult patient with intermediate-risk cytogenetics. We're not really told what that looks like, but. It could be, for example, three copies of 1Q, who has relapsed after upfront RVD transplant and R maintenance. Here it says high-risk cytogenetics, has diabetes, has a PS that's not completely great, and progressed after three years of maintenance. So I think we would all agree that they're probably LEN refractory on that first question since this patient was on R. And we have the question of, what are the goals of therapy when using a CD38 platform given this past history? So, Dr. Nuka, take it away. Great. So,
3: definitely, we all agree on one thing. At least, these patients need a CD38 antibody to begin with. The debate comes in is, what is a partner to the CD38 antibody? Could this be, what are the options that we have? Number one, is this which is a second-generation emid And number two, can you use botasmap? Or number three, can you use carfilzomib? In a setting like this, I probably may not use botasmap. My option goes down to, because you cannot give it for a longer period of time for all the reasons within neuropathy, my options go down to pomalidomide or carfilzomib. So the few things that Dr. Biren alluded to before should be brought into the discussion here. What is the timing of the relapse? So here it is three years after the maintenance, uh, three years of maintenance after transplant. So that's pretty early. Number two, what, what are the cytogenetic risk factors that the patient has? The biology of the disease, the patient has intermediate risk cytogenetics. This is not the standard risk cytogenetic person that we're we're looking at. So all those factors tell me that using a Data Plus KD regimen or an ESA plus KD regimen, which has a better PFS that has ever been demonstrated probably will be my choice of treatment in this patient. Fully understanding with the Dara dex regimen, it's an oral regimen, very patient convenient, but if I have to use K, I make a case for a patient like this.
1: Okay. Very good. So I think, Dr. Bieren, you mentioned during your presentation that you also like CD38KD for high risk. So maybe you can address the next part, which are strategies for mitigating some of the adverse events, which you did talk about, in part, in terms of immune suppression and infection risk.
2: Yeah, I think the subcutaneous form is uh, less problematic in this regard, but certainly you want to educate your patient. I would use Singulair the night before, pre-medicate with a, a uh a diphenhydramine, acetaminophen, and an H2 block or pepcid. Uh, that can mitigate your infusion Reaction or injection reaction, and then you really want to have a, a low threshold for uh, thinking about infections in these populations, in these patients. So really, take a you know, patient might come and say, "Oh, I have a sore throat. I think it's allergies." It's probably not allergies. Look in the throat. You know, probably treat them. You know, if it, or at least be very uh, you know aware that this can quickly progress if it's a viral infection into a pneumonia and um, you know, be very on top of infections, warn them about mitigating risk of infection, hand washing, mask wearing, vaccination. You wanna make sure everybody's vaccinated. Um, that's really the big.
1: And then in terms of prophylaxis, I think we would all agree that zoster prophylaxis should be given with a CD38, but let's just have a quick panel vote, and uh, only one vote, please, unlike the Chicago traditions from the past, Uh, would you do gamma globulin on patients, let's say if the IgG is below 400?
3: Not among patients who are receiving daratumab.
1: Dr. Bieren?
2: If they have three or more antibiotic infections requiring infections a year, I do it. That's my threshold, and Danny knows that.
1: And then antibacterial <laughs> antibiotics, whether you do levofloxacin, cipro, amoxicillin, any circumstances under which you do that routinely?
3: I never do it on chronic, chronically on any patients. And the only thing that I would give is antivirals.
1: Now we're going to pass the baton, which starts with a B, and Dr. Nuka will present on B is for BCMA antibodies and beyond. And of course, as you see, Dr. Nuka is a professor in hematology and medical oncology and the director of the myeloma program at the Winship Cancer Institute in Atlanta, Georgia. Take it away, sir.
3: Thank you, Bob. I got the baton. (laughs) So B is for BCMA antibodies and beyond. So, what do the NCCN guidelines talk about later relapse? You heard very clearly about the patients who are up to the early relapse. With with we have more clarity in terms of what the backbones exist. You have the map backbone, and you have the uh, you have the options of PIs and IMiDs. So we are beyond that. So now we have it's like a dealer's choice. You go to, you people pick up the options based on how how you want to match it to the patient. So what I'd like to do is to create that framework so that you make the right determination and the most optimal treatment for that specific patient. So what are the options that we have? We have I'll put out five drugs. Two of them I won't be discussing. Dr. Olasky, I'll leave for Dr. Olasky. But the other three I'll be discussing more in detail so that we understand what do they exactly do, what do they mean, and what are the take-home messages that you need to go home with so that that drug can be given in a safer way so the options ticklist map map is a bcma targeting bispecific antibody Balantmap map is an antibody drug conjugate again targeting bcma and we do have an option of selinexa i don't use it on a regular basis for all, for all the reasons with the toxicities but in some circumstances as bridging therapies or we can discuss more in detail we use that option at, at times so let me stick to uh, the two topics, the antibody drug conjugates and the bispecific antibodies, more in detail so that we can, we can understand more of what they can offer. So balamaf. Balamaf is an antibody drug conjugate. The antibody has a payload attached to it with a linker. So when the BCMA, when Balamaph binds to the, to the BCMA, which is the target on the surface of the plasma cell, it is rapidly internalized and leading to the release of that cytotoxic substance, the MMAF, which is a microtubule inhibitor. So it causes the cell cycle arrest, it causes apoptosis, and it also promotes the immunogenic cell death. BalamF has multimodal mechanisms of action. It has the, uh, it kills the myeloma cells through the immune mechanisms of ADCC and ADCP as well. So now... The science is very interesting, so what is how did that translate into clinically, and what are the side effect profile that we saw? So I don't want you to be taken away by the overall response rate that you see at 30%. The biospecific antibodies had put us at a higher bar at an overall response rate of 60%, but 30% was not bad. We got an approval of Belantamab at 30% overall response rate. We got an approval of Selenexer with less than... 30 percent response rate. So this is approved based on the DREAM2 trial, where overall response rate was 32 percent, and you saw a large amount of patients achieving a PR or or a VGPR. So what is more important here is the duration of response. So those 32% of the patients who respond continue to have that response despite the dose modifications, despite the dose holds for the toxicities, these responses last beyond one year. And these are the patients who were not having those kinds of outcomes. And clearly the drug has, it was an unmet need and that led to the approval of this specific drug for an accelerated approval. So the, the adverse events in this DREAM2 trial that led to the approval showed keratopathy seen in almost three-fourths of the patients. So grade three or grade four toxicity was seen in 30% of the patients. And these thrombocytopenias is that, is that next most common adverse event and we're all hematologists, we can deal with the thrombocytopenia, but we never dealt with the keratopathies before. So there was a lot of interaction that happened when we had the drug available. So we we were working with the ophthalmologist and the REMS program clearly talked to us about having an ophthalmology exam done. And if the the toxicity is is a grade one or lesser, you can go ahead and dose dose the patient. And certainly, if if it is a higher grade, you tend to delay the dosing to the next time, and it is OK to miss the dose, and the response is continued. So long term, it's a safer drug that was given. Patients regain their their visual acuity with withholding the drug. It is a good drug to continue to use. So just like I alluded to before, so with the dose delays and dose reductions that, that happened in this specific trial, we did not suffer any consequences in terms of losing the responses, and overall the drug related discontinuation the a related discontinuation of the drug happened in close to ten percent of the patients so now, this was a great drug. we were using it for two years so for for all the reasons that we talked about, if so you take three patients and one patient will respond, and when that patient responds. The patient's response lasts for more than one year, and this patient is coming in once every three weeks, and every three weeks they're getting an eye exam, and if the toxicity is not as bad, gets a dosing, otherwise goes home. So toxicity-wise, this is schedule-wise, there is no other drug that, that could beat it. So this was two years ago. Then what happened? So why did we pull off this drug? So the DREAM-3 trial that was presented today is a confirmatory trial. So I'll take a minute about explaining what, what, what this approval looks like. So not just this trial, but in oncology, we have an approval called the, the accelerated approval program. So drugs get approved based on a response rate. But if a drug gets approved based on a response rate, there should be a confirmatory trial, a phase three trial, against standard of care, that should prove that the drug is better than the standard of care, so that leads, to, that leads to a full approval of the current drug. I'll give the example of Selenexer. Selenexer and dexamethasone have been approved based on the response rate of less than 30%. But then they had to do a confirmatory trial, and that confirmatory trial is the Boston trial where Selenexer bortezomib dexamethasone was compared against bortezomib dexamethasone, and the control arm is dexamethasone. it's a doublet, and certainly had expected PFS of close to nine months. That's exactly where it ended up. By adding selinexor, the, the PFS was beyond the 12-month mark. That really helped for the approval of the drug. So here, the same story, let's bring it here. So belantamab was compared against pomalidomide and dexamethasone. This is a large trial, 380 patients. Randomization, if you look at it, it's a two-to-one randomization. So that means two patients would get belantamab, one patient would get Pomlodemidexamethasone. And this is an early-line therapy where patients would receive the drug until progression. And the primary endpoint here is PFS, okay? So this trial was presented today. Until today, all I knew was Belantimab was withdrew from the market. We did not know the, the details. So Today, this is what the what 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 the trial was presented. This is embargo data. So, the drug is not an inactive drug; it is an active drug. The PFS was 11.2 months versus the PFS of 7 months for the control arm. Whenever I look at a trial, the first thing that I look at is the control trial. That's exactly the reason why I talked about the bortezomib as control arm. Whenever there's a control arm, the first question that I ask is what am I expecting from the control arm? If it's a KD trial, what is the PFS that I was expecting? 15 to 17 months. So whereas if it is showing like 30 months, there is something wrong with the patient selection, right? So that control arm is always talking to us about the validity of the study. And here, the control arm had 7.2 months. It is okay. So that's, I normally expect anywhere between four months to six months in a population like this. That's what we saw in Apollo. That's what we, we, we saw in Icaria. And this is a, this 7.2 months or seven months is not too out of the boundary for, for what I would expect. So there was a four month PFS benefit, but the hazardous ratio that you see here is 1.03. Why is the hazardous ratio uh, so low? When or are equivalent. When you saw the the balamap to be delivering that kind of a benefit of more than four months, so my cursor is not working. But if you look at the the curves at the four, at the four month mark, there was a there was a flip in the benefit of benefit of versus benefit of benefit of uh, So that has resulted in the hazard ratio to come to one point zero three. Instead of a, a, a benefit that was seen, we don't know the details, the devil lies in the details, why that exactly happened, what those doses missed, or was this a benefit of a dex- dexamethasone purely. We don't know any of those. But one thing I can clearly say this is not an, not an agent that does not have activity. This, has, this drug has activity. All it needs to do is get through that regulatory hurdle so that we get, get it back into play so that our patients can benefit. So now, there are two trials that are ongoing. One is the DREAM-7 trial and the DREAM-8 trial. Those are large randomized trials. One is comparing uh, bortezomib pomalidomide dexamethasone versus balumab pomalidomide dexamethasone. The next one is daratumab bortezomide dexamethasone versus balantumab, no, darapomdex versus balapomdex. So these two trials will read out. Once we read out, we potentially have a place for belantamab back in the game. Until then, what would happen? So I have a patient, an 80-year-old. She had seen 10 lines of therapy, was treated in New York, moved to Atlanta. Then she came to see me one day, and I started giving belantamab two years ago. So she responded beautifully. Her paraprotein was four grams, went to a zero, and she continues to get these responses. She's always in a wheelchair. There is no other treatment that, that I think I could, I could give, give to this patient. And now, when the drug was taken off the market, I put in a single patient IND for her. So, which means this patient is a clinical trial should be considered as one patient clinical trial, and the FDA RIRB has to approve. FDA has to approve so that she can continue to get the drug. So that is one option. There's an expanded access program that where you can request the company to give those drugs. So all these are the extra steps that you have to take when when the drug is not in the market. But nevertheless. All our patients have single patient INDs that are responding. We have more than 10 patients that continue to re- derive the response, and we're happy to do it that way. Okay. So, when we're we using belantamab, do not forget they still need the eye exam. We talked about the benefit of the drug, the toxicity still exists, so they still need to go through the whole protocol, no shortcuts. Patients should still get the ophthalmology exams. So, that's the take home message. Okay. So now let's talk about the other treatments. So we talked about a drug. We talked about the problem that the drug has. We talked about some solutions. So what's Teclistamab? Teclistamab is a BCMA directed by specific antibodies. So it has, let's think about it as having two arms. With one arm, it is holding the myeloma cell. With the other arm, it is holding the T cell, bringing them together, allowing for the cell death. I made it so simple, but it's not as simple. But it's a T-cell activation uh, that leads to the lysis of the myeloma cells. So it was studied first in the Majestic 1 study. This study had 163 patients that were enrolled. So this was the first of the agents that was evaluated in a a, a setting like this. And in this triple-class refractory patients, we, we, we were just talking about the history 30% 30% was way higher than what we would expect. Guess what? Techlistmap gave 60% for us. So this became the new benchmark. Now we're all looking at 60% as a new benchmark, The older drugs are ineffective drugs. The answer is no, but clearly this has changed the way of how we think about treating the refractory patient population. When we talk about refractory patient population, we never talked about MRD negativity here we are talking about mrd negativity in a quarter of the patients guess what the mrd negativity rate was thalidomide and dexamethasone in the newly diagnosed setting it was 4% so we never had mrd before we were talking about mrd here so i was 4% cr rates So here we're talking about MRD in the refractory setting. These drugs are so effective, they can do the job. And when you look at the VGPR rates, you see in 60% of the patients, 63% overall response rate, 59% VGPR. The depths of responses are so good. The median PFS is one year. So guess what the median PFS for, for silt cell, for a CAR T, going through taking all, all, all the all the risks of taking a patient through the process, 11.3 months. So these drugs off the shelf that we certainly can give these patients can deliver those depths of responses and duration of responses as well. The median PFS is 11.3 months, median overall survival is 18.3 months with Majestic 1. That led to the approval. Going back to the story of Selenexib, going back to the story of Belantimab with DREAM3, This trial is approved on an accelerated approval program, which means there need to be a confirmatory trial that needs to come in and prove that this drug has activity compared to the standard of care. And that trial is ongoing at this point. So there's several of them that are ongoing, but this trial is uh, the one that is accruing or almost accrued is the majestic 3 study, which is in the early line uh, setting. Similar to what we talked about, what Dr. Birian talked about earlier. So you cannot take the whole group of patients as one patient and treat everybody the same way. You have to understand who are the ones that are getting the best responses and who are the ones that probably they're getting suboptimal responses. We need to do more. So that's what this forest plot does. So this dot that you see, if it is towards the left that means it is, the response is lesser. If it's to the right, the response is much higher. So the groups of people where you, s- you don't see as many responses are that extramedullary plasmacytoma, where the responses are in the range of 25 to 30 percent, when the overall response rate that you see is almost 63 percent. So what do these people need? So they would need more than map. right? So when you look at The the discussion from today at ASCO, so telcatumab was combined with daratumumab to see specifically in this specific patient population who had extramedullary disease where they were seeing those responses in extramedullary disease in close to 90% of the people. So you need more for some group of patients that may not be applicable for all the patients. So now, this is a very new group of patients. What what we're talking about in in cohort C is patients that were previously exposed to BCMA therapies. So we're moving along where the patients are receiving more and more treatments, and what was called panther yesterday, is no longer existing. We have hexarefractory status, right? So we have two MEDs, two PIs, and one CD38 antibody. We're calling them pentarefractory. Now add an antibody drug conjugate or a T that are uh, that are bcma directed. You specifically are having a refractory patient population and what we what you're seeing on this slide is what is their activity if you retreat them with a BCM BCMA therapy here. So Column number one that you see are patients that have previously received belantamab, And column number two is, are those that have previously seen CAR-T, both of them BCMA exposed. And you're still, still able to see those responses beyond the 50% mark. Today, there was a presentation that we did which looked at LRA which is the other CD38 monoclonal antibody, uh, which is the other BCMA directed bispecific antibody, where the pooled analysis of all the trials that that ever had given, uh, that that ever enrolled a BCMA targeted previously treated therapy of ADC or CAR T, and of these 89 patients, the overall response rate with LRA was in the range of close to 50% or 52%. So these numbers are aligning so well so which gives us hope number one you you have options for this space of people who are who are treated with the BCM directed therapy and you not only have alternate targets with FCRH5 or GPRC5D you also can treat with the same agent again okay so now, this is the redirect, redirect one <laughs> trial that we were, we were talking about. This is the 92% of the patients that, uh, that had overall response rate uh, with teclismab and, and telcatamab. So a combination of those potentially may not be applicable for everyone. What we're all talking about here is efficacy, efficacy, efficacy. There's a component which is safety. So when I'm giving a drug, I want to give the drug in the most safest way possible. So these drugs come with a with baggage. So you're redirecting all the T cells to kill the myeloma cells, but T cells have other functions as well. T cells protect you from infections. So these patients become heavily, heavily immunocompromised. There are deaths. There are 10% of the patients die from this, from viral reactivations, viral infections, opportunistic infections. And we can prevent that by... Number one, going back to the infectious principles that Dr. Erlowski talked about, and making sure that you're giving them in the safest way. And these combinations can be given for people where you need those combinations, otherwise you're not benefiting them. Okay, so practical points, so CRS is a, I always feel that CRS is is something that that makes people shudder, that makes people feel that, oh, something is happening. In my, in my mind, in my, in my view, I always feel like that's a signal the drug is working. It is an anti- antigen-mediated immune stimulation for a patient. So if, if somebody has a CRS, get familiarity with what it is, easily treatable, not to be worried about, and that should not make people to, to change what the treaters uh, and, and, and so on. So this is seen in two-thirds of the patients. Grade 3 CRS was seen in one patient with teclistimab. And this is almost similar across all, all the BCMA targeting biospecific antibodies. You're seeing in very, very less fraction of patients with a grade 3 disease, but grade 1 or grade 2 are majority of these. And if you treat them with tocilizumab, for example, with teclistimab, patients who receive tocilizumab, their recurrence rate, even if, even for a low grade, for a grade 1 CRS, once they're treated with tocilizumab, which is an IL-6 antibody, the recurrence rate is in the range of around 20% or lesser. If they treat with steroids, the recurrence rate is in the range of 50 to 60%. So this understanding what the, what the data is giving us, allowing to make the right decision for the patient is the key here. Okay. So looks like we need to pick up pace. Sorry, I'm delayed. But teclizumab dosing uh, is is a step-up schedule. So for all the fears that we talked about the CRS, most of the times has happened with the priming doses. The priming dose for teclistamab is 0.03 microgram per kilogram. The second dose is 0.6 microgram per kilogram. The third dose, or the target dose, is 1.5 microgram per kilogram. 4% of the target dose, then it becomes 20% of the target dose, then the target dose. Most of the CRS that you see, is all happening with the first three doses beyond the first month you don't see it as as much so if you're partnering with community if, with with a if you're a community physician partnering with with an academic center so probably after that one month or one and a half month you you probably can get your patient back and you should be able to deliver the treatment by yourself okay so there was a article. Uh, this is a poster. This is a Fox Chase experience. Basically, they were talking about how to deliver teclismab as an outpatient. In fact, like the reason why it becomes controversial was on the uh, on the label. The FDA created a REMS program saying that the patient should be the, for the first three doses, the patient should be hospitalized for 48 hours. The word "should" is there, not "must." So. There is an option for uh, patient to, for it to be given as an outpatient, and potentially this this is one of the models that is allowing for this to be given as an outpatient for all the all the reasons, including the reimbursements, including the patient convenience, and so on. So there are several other biospecics in the development. The elranatmab that we talked about, the subcut dose was uh, 20 milligrams, 32 milligrams, and 76 milligrams subcutaneously given. Uh, given every week. The next one is Lenvoseltamab. This is a Regeneron compound. This was discussed today. It has almost the same efficacy and safety that we saw with every other agent. And there is an abv compound as well as a Celgene compound, all of them targeting BCMA. So again, take-home messages. We talked about Belantamab. We don't have it available, but you need it for your patient. You always can can get it. There are several options to, to do that, and we're waiting for the future confirmatory trials. For ticlismab, right now, as we see, the best way is if, I, if I'm planning to give a CAR-T for a patient, and if it, if it is taking two months for me to get there, and if I can't wait for those two months, this is an option. It's an off-the-shelf agent. I could give it the next day. Infection management, we talked about it repeatedly. This is, a, this is a person where I would give any BCMA targeted treatment. We would give IVIG, whether the patient has IgG levels less than 400 or not, IVIG and everyone on a monthly basis. This is a patient where I would give the PJP prophylaxis. This is a patient where I would give the antivirals. Antibacterials were not there yet, so that's how I would go with So. Got two more drugs with two more targets, this Savostomab and Telcat map. targets FCRH5 and telcatmap targets, GPRC5D, and TelcatMAP was evaluated in two doses. One is on a weekly basis; The other one is every other week. The responses are exactly the same. The side effects are exactly the same. It has uh, been studied in, in 288 patients, and the data was submitted to the FDA, and we might get an approval towards the end of the year. This is an alternate target than the BCMA. The, we talked about the efficacy. Efficacy is in the range of around 60 to 70 percent. The safety-wise, the grade three infections are beyond, are much lower with with this target. You're seeing it in 10 to 15 percent of the patients, unlike the BCMA-targeted therapies. So a good option for us should be in the pocket for us to avail when the patient needs it. Okay. So This also has the data that we previously discussed about, the prior BCMA-targeted approaches, and these responses among the patients who had seen a prior BCMA-targeted therapy are in the range of around 60% or so. So, Sevastomab is that it targets FCRH5. Again, the same concept with with CD3, and the overall response rate is no different than the others. This is a non-BCMA-targeted therapy, similar to what we had seen uh, the overall response rates reach around 60% or so. So we're in a great space. I'm always looking for options, and having more options never, never hurts. So we were beggars at one time. Beggars can now <laughs> be choosers. Now we are in a place where, we, where we, we have abundance of riches. So I'm happy we are there. We got to use these drugs very carefully, and we can get the best outcomes for our patients.
1: All right. Thank you very much. Uh, Excellent presentation. So let's do a little case discussion. Here's an older 73-year-old patient, although I have to tell you that's looking younger all the time. Uh, but this is somebody who's relapsed after four lines of prior therapy, has rapid progression on the most recent regimen, kind of a marginal PS of two and standard risk cytogenetics. And we're told that the prior treatment is with a CD38 antibody, an IMID, a PI, and their BCMA naive. So assuming that planning for a CAR T has not yet started, should this patient be offered immediate off-the-shelf therapy? Dr. Bieran?
2: The biggest question here is whether or not CAR T cells are effective in the post-BCMA bispecific therapy space. We don't know the answer to that based on most of the data we have other than some retrospective data. So I would say if this is a patient you will consider at any point for a BCMA CAR-T, I would avoid using teclistimab in this patient. I would probably debulk the patient uh, with uh, infusional type of chemo and then try to freeze cells or try and, um, if that's not an option for whatever reason, comorbidities, performance status, then this would be an excellent candidate for teclistimab because it's off the shelf, response rate is very quick, Uh, we've seen extramedullary disease melt uh, in in very short time, so um, those would be the two options.
1: Yeah, I think you make a good point, which is that alkylating agents are still a reasonable option, although be careful with drugs like bendamustine because there's a history of poor lymphocyte collections after that drug, so you probably want to stick with cyclophosphamide, for example. I think we've talked about infection risk mitigation, which is pretty similar with bispecifics as the previous discussion. So then the last question here is, had the patient received Belomath, what is the appropriate monitoring eye exam schedule? Dr. Nuka, you covered that a little bit, but maybe you can revisit that just really quickly.
3: Absolutely. I, w- I would emphasize this a hundred times because this is something that you could clearly avoid or prevent, So, which is the corneal toxicity. So. Any MMF as a payload that we talked about that, that is a payload that the antibody drug conjugate carries has con, uh, is associated with corneal toxicities. So the first dose, people do very well. Second dose, people do very well. So probably from the third dose onwards, we might be afraid that the, there could be some corneal ulcerations. So that's exactly the reason why... An ophthalmologic examination is needed so that the patients can see, the, the, so that the ophthalmologist can see any of the microcystic changes even before something uh, irreversible happens. We've never seen that to happen in the clinical trials, but if it is not monitored properly, there's a possibility for that to happen. So that is one of the main reasons I tend to emphasize and emphasize before every dosing, an ophthalmologic exam needs to happen. If you're missing a dose, don't worry about it. Because in the trials we'd see, and if you miss a dose, you still continue to get get that response.
1: And there are some suggestions that less frequent dosing may be equally effective, but potentially have less ocular toxicity, and I think both of our centers are involved in a different BCMA-targeted ADC trial, a drug called HDP-101, and at least so far there hasn't been ocular tox. So it's still possible there may be other ADCs on the horizon that don't have that. So here's case number four, which is a heavily pretreated adult patient with triple-class refractory myeloma who has gotten prior BCMA therapy and relapsed about a year after CAR-T. You are told that they still have BCMA expression on their myeloma cells, which is an important fact, and that they have minimal comorbidities. So can a bispecific agent be considered here, Dr. Buren?
2: Absolutely. We have data to show that uh, bispecifics to against BCMA have effect, uh, effect and are effective, in fact, against patients who have relapsed post-BCMA CAR-T, uh, especially if their cells have BCMA expression. Some post-CAR-T relapses are characterized by lack of, of BCMA expression because of mutation of the myeloma cells. In that case, you may not see as uh, significant of a response, but in this particular case, it seems that the mechanism of relapse was loss of T-cell persistence, and you still have BCMA expression. And in this situation, it would be appropriate to use a bispecific directed against BCMA.
1: And so, Dr. Nuka, right now, BCMA is our only target, but as you pointed out, we've got others that are coming. Let's assume for the sake of argument that you had choices between multiple drugs. Would you go with BCMA in this previously BCMA therapy exposed patient, thinking that they responded, so maybe they'll do it again? Or would you do not so much a class switch, but maybe a target switch, and go after GPRC5D instead this time, or FCRH5, thinking that, eh, you know, one year isn't really all that great after all, and maybe I can do better with something else.
3: Yep. Both are essential options. You you, you bring a great point. So this, this is where I would take the patient's input very much into the play. We, we understand the risks associated with, with targeting BCMA. We understand the risks associated with GPR GPRC-5D as an option as well. So clearly understanding what the patient needs, putting the pros and cons up front, and giving out the data will help us to make the decision.
1: Fair enough. And then, Dr. Bieran, what about assessing immune health and soluble BCMA levels, for example? Do we know anything about that?
2: In the CAR T-cell studies, we know that there was no correlation between response and soluble BCMA levels. In terms of immune health, there are a lot of ongoing studies looking at immune phenotype, T-cell subsets, cytokine profiles, uh, in terms of assessing response biomarkers of early progression. So I think those are going to be very important, especially in the setting of uh, depleted immune system and increased risk of opportunistic infections.
1: Very good. And I think we've already talked about other CAR-Ts, and we also will in the next section. And the last section, C, is for CAR T-cell therapy in myeloma, and you'll have to hear this presentation from this scruffy-looking and not particularly great individual here. What is the established evidence for BCMA CAR T-cells? We've covered some of this information already, but you've heard that there are two of these that are currently approved for patients with four or more prior therapies, and that's idacaptogene viclucell and silticaptogene autolucel, also known as Idacel or siltacel. This is just a diagram showing you a typical car design, which has an SCFV, which is the portion of the construct that binds the target, whether it be BCMA or GPRC5D or whatever. And then there are intracellular signaling domains, most commonly 41BB and CD3Zeta, which activate the T cell once the car is bound by the target. And you can see that in Phase 1 testing, there was very promising activity of cell with an almost 90% overall response rate and almost 40% of patients having a complete response at higher cell dose levels. That prompted karma trials, and you can see a variety of dose levels represented in the graph with patients that got 300 times 10 to the sixth or 450 times 10 to the sixth cells getting the best responses with overall responses of 69 to 81 percent and quite a few patients achieving complete or stringent complete response. You can see 30 to 40 percent, and on the rightmost bar graph out of 128 patients, there was an overall response rate of 73 percent. You can see median time to first response is one month actually if you follow things like free light chains what you'll see is that these really drop like a rock even before one month in most patients so the good news is that this is really a rapid response and the median follow-up in this particular cohort was 13.3 months when you look at different clinically relevant subgroups, including those that we would consider to be high-risk, the response rates were generally maintained. So you can see on the left is extramedullary disease, which is considered high-risk, and the overall response rates are similar. The same thing was true for high-risk cytogenetics versus non-high-risk, for high versus low tumor burden, and also for number of prior regimens, there was a lower response rate for folks that had stage three disease versus stage one or two, but for most of the other categories, the response rates were equivalent. We do now have some real-world data that were presented and more recently published. This is an academic consortium led by Krina Patel at MD Anderson, and you can see progression-free survival among the people who met the original Carmel one criteria were very good, and safety and efficacy were comparable with what was reported in the clinical trials. There was a slightly lower outcome among people who did not meet CARMA-1 criteria, but hopefully there will be additional strategies to capture those folks in the future. Now for Siltacel, we have the CARTITUDE studies, and this is the two-year follow-up of CARTITUDE 1 after the last patient in, and you can see an overall response rate of virtually 100% and complete responses in 82% of patients, really dramatic data. And these were numbers we used not to see in newly diagnosed patients, let alone relapsed and refractory after four or more prior therapies. And Siltacel is being evaluated in other trials, both in the relapsed refractory setting, in earlier line settings, and also in some newly diagnosed settings. This is a comparison of real-world data to silta cell and the real world data come from the locomotion study. And you can see silta cell in the top left curve is the top line and certainly if you're a patient with relapsed refractory myeloma you want to be on that line and it shows you the superiority of this car t-cell type approach to any of the other standard of cares that are available the left is the pfs and the right is also the os so you can see much longer overall survival, both of those parameters being quite important. Now we've talked a little bit already about cytokine release syndrome as well as immune effector cell associated neurotoxicity syndrome. These are the numbers for cell. So 84% of patients get some level of CRS. As Dr. Nuka mentioned, I also feel if they don't get at least a little bit of CRS, I worry about response. Although it may be that when you're treating patients with lower disease burden, there could be less CRS. Fortunately, only 5% of those were grade 3 or higher. And the median time to onset with cell is one day. That's important to remember because it's a very different number for siltacell And for ICANS, only 18% of patients had some neurotoxicity and only 3% had grade 3 or 4 as is the case for bispecifics because all of these approaches killed not just myeloma cells but also normal plasma cells, and now you're doing lymphodepletion before you're infusing the T cells. Uh, the lymphodepletion is usually with fludarabine and cyclophosphamide. You do get an increased risk of infections, and 22% of those were grade 3 or 4. This is where you have to be aggressive with antivirus and potentially also antibacterial and gamma globulin replacement therapy. And there is a fair risk of grade three or four neutropenia as well as some risk of thrombocytopenia. This is the similar table for Siltacel once again a low risk of grade three or four cytokine release syndrome but you can see that it comes at a later day whereas it's day one for idacel it's day seven for cell, possibly in part because you're infusing fewer cells with cell than with cell. So it takes the siltacell CAR T-cells a little bit longer to expand to the point where CRS is an issue. Once again, a low rate of ICANS both overall as well as grade three or four. And the rates of infection, neutropenia and thrombocytopenia are about the same. I think the other difference with cell is that there are some other neurotoxicities that have been seen that are less common with Idacel, and those may be because of BCMA expression in parts of the brain. Here are some general principles. Once again, with Idacel, the recommended dose is 300 to 460 times 10 to the sixth cells, whereas for Siltacel, it's a lower number, usually 0.5 to 1 times 10 to the sixth. Keep in mind that, as you've heard, it takes time for the manufacturing of these cells right now, although hopefully in the future there will be more rapid protocols. But the sooner you refer a patient who you think might be heading for CAR-T to one of our or one of your local academic centers, the better, preferably at least one line before you think that they will need it, and maybe even sooner do not use Luka-depleting filters when infusing them that's more something for us avoid prophylactic dexamethasone this is one of those weird areas in myeloma because we add dex to just about everything, but you want to try to avoid steroids as much as possible with CAR T-cells because, of course, the steroids will kill the T-cells, which is not something that you want, and you want to definitely monitor for adverse events including the CRS, ICANs, and a fortunately rare but still potentially serious hemophagocytic syndrome. Other general principles are shown here. We talked about lymphodepletion with cyclophosphamide and fludarabine. Most of the time that can be given as an outpatient. There is premedication for the cellular infusion. We have the CRS and ICANS monitoring, and Idacel and Siltacel are available through a restricted program. So there is a REMS process that we all have to go through. Now you saw the data for fourth or later line of therapy there are beginning to emerge data for earlier line use of CAR T cells so these are following kind of the typical development process which is that drugs are first evaluated in relapsed refractory patients where there are few or no standard therapies and if they show good efficacy there we move them earlier and the hope is that the the patients will have myeloma that is less drug-resistant. And specifically for CAR T-cells, hopefully their T-cells are a little bit healthier because they haven't been beaten up by quite so many therapies. So for cell, there are some data suggesting that it will work even better earlier. There's the CARMA-2 study cohort 2a which looked at early relapse patients these were folks relapsing after frontline transplant and you can see an overall response rate of 73 percent with a complete response rate of almost 50 percent and 12 month and 24 month pfs rates were about 50 and 25 percent respectively And then Karma 3 looked at Idacel and there was an indication of an improved PSS in patients treated with two to four prior regimens where it was 13.3 months with Idacel, which is a few months longer than in more advanced patients versus only 4.4 months with standard triplet platforms. So, hopefully something that may in the future support approval of the use of these earlier. Siltacel is a little bit further behind, but there are data beginning to emerge. There's Cartitude 2 Cohort B, which again is an early relapsed setting. These are patients who relapsed after transplant less than 12 months out. We know that this is a high risk patient population that does not do well with our current therapies. The same is true for people who have relapsed within 12 months after a non-transplant therapy. For example, transplant ineligible patients who get induction and then relapse. And you can see here that the overall response rate was only 98%. Tough to get much higher than where we are already. But really wonderful numbers and 83% of those patients achieve a stringent complete response with longer follow-up. And then the Cartitude 4 data, which are gonna be presented on Monday as a late-breaking abstract, and definitely if you're here or if you're at home, you can definitely tune into that. But what we know of that so far is that there seems to be a substantial decrease in the risk of disease progression compared with standard treatment and so again that could lead to an ultimate FDA approval for the use of this therapy earlier in the disease process. One thing that I think all of us are still trying to understand is the right sequencing between BCMA and non-BCMA options although there are some data that suggest it's feasible for example, if you've had a CAR-T or BelomF, it may be reasonable to get a BCMA bispecific. And here are some summaries of the data with both teclistimab and with l that show you a slightly over 50% response rate in patients that are ADC-exposed or CAR-T-exposed. Remember that the overall response rate for these in naive patients was around 60%. To 65 percent, so 50 to 55 looks pretty good, and then BCMA targeted treatment followed by CAR T cells. We know that cell has a very good overall response rate in patients with prior BCMA targeted therapy. The 60 percent overall response rate is a little bit lower than the almost 100 percent, but I think that if we treat the right patients, especially people who relapse late after CAR-T as opposed to the early relapsers, I think the early relapsers are probably not going to be the best targets. But I think if you've had, like with transplant, a long remission duration with one BCMA CAR-T, then a second BCMA CAR-T would still be very reasonable. And so these data here try to get at that question. And this is a real world multi-institutional experience that shows that given CAR T after prior BCMA can still be effective. Again, these are can CAR T therapy be used in patients exposed to BCMA? These are the CARTITUDE 2 cohort data. These are small numbers, so I think we have to be a little bit cautious in getting too excited. But it does look like that patients with heavily pretreated myeloma and previous exposure to a non-cellular anti-BCMA have favorable responses. You can see the ADC exposed bar graph in the middle and the. By specific antibody bar graph over on the right. So what are the take-home messages and who should get CAR-T? So first of all, in terms of patient and treatment selection, patients with relapsed refractory myeloma after four or five prior lines of therapy are good candidates, maybe sooner. Real-world data do show that CAR-T can be offered to patients who might otherwise be considered too old or frail and do avoid alkylators at least things like bendamustine cyclophosphamide is probably okay at standard doses and do try to avoid high dose steroids although small doses may be okay again how early should you start referral the sooner the better is the bottom line but at least one line prior as long as the manufacturing as it is now takes two to four weeks and who should be considered for early use these are not yet FDA approved indications, but certainly high risk patients are logical candidates, and I think patients with rapidly progressing disease who would essentially be high risk would fall into that category as well. So we've got time for a little bit of a case forum, and this is case discussion number five with an older fit patient who relapses after four prior lines of therapy, has standard risk and stage two disease. Prior treatments include dara dex as initial therapy. Second line was pomalidomide bortezomib-Dex. Third line therapy from the Bastin trial was selenexor, bortezomib, dex, and then most recently the patient got carfilzomib, cyclophosphamide, and dex. I think we've already covered the question about when should car therapy be planned for this patient. Probably it should have been around the time of either XVD getting started or KCD getting started. What about recommendations for monitoring within and after the acute care post BCMA CAR T period? Dr. Nuka.
3: So we typically ask the patients to stay. It's almost like the principles that we learned from the allogeneic transplant is what we clearly apply here. So we ask patients to be staying around around us, close to us within that 20 minute radius for a month or so. so. Typically, after that one month, the risk of any acute event, the CRS or the ICANNs, drastically declines. So it's more safer for them to reach home, but still closely follow, uh, but not as closely as we w- as we would do in the, within the first month. So the first 15 days, we typically hospitalize every patient. There are outpatient models that we have, but which re- requires a continuous monitoring almost the patient needs to be seen every 48 hours so those are those outpatient models are only applicable for few centers where there is already an established infrastructure for outpatient uh, outpatient transplants has already been established so st- letting the patient stay close to us keeping close monitoring Making, making them aware of immediate, uh, how to reach out to the healthcare provider right away when, when an acute event happens. Those are all the things that we tend to do from a logistic perspective.
1: Okay, now we've already talked about bend the mustine. The bottom line is don't do this at home. So, Dr. Bieren, what if this patient had renal insufficiency? Would you still think about this person as a good CAR-T candidate, and how would you modify their treatment if you decided to proceed?
2: I think it would be a fantastic therapy for patients with renal failure. Remember, uh, in myeloma, we see CRS, which is very predictable. Um, we know how to treat it. We Most of them are grade one and two. We, we have protocols in place monitoring these patients, REMS certification, very well-trained nurses. Uh, not as many volume shifts, even less so than we use with stem cell transplant. Uh, these, this is not myeloablative chemotherapy, so uh, we don't see severe myelosuppression. Uh, We have safely administered CAR T-cells in patients who are on renal replacement therapy, and the good news is that after the CAR T-cells, they get a prolonged treatment-free period and are monitored without intervention, maybe some transfusion support, but for the most part, no treatment for a median of a year.
1: Excellent. Uh, Do remember that fludarabine does require some dose adjustment with renal insufficiency, though. Okay, case number six, an adult patient is progressing after true prior lines of therapy. Is there a role for CAR-T in this setting? And we're told that this patient has high-risk cytogenetics, got DARA-RVD transplant, and then RVD maintenance. Sounds like somebody maybe who uh, was in Atlanta. Uh, and then after that, did relapse and got DPD, but with only a very brief six-month benefit. So, Dr. Nuka, how early is early? How soon in the treatment journey can CAR T be considered? If I were to make a case for somebody
3: for a CAR T to be given early, this is the this is the person that I'd want to give it early. We have seen two things here. Number one, the presence of high risk cytogenetics shows that there is it's a predictor for shorter PFS and we've proved it with continuous ongoing maintenance treatment. We are still not able to control the disease. So we want to use the most effective treatment up front and potentially Cati that we know of as of today is the most effective treatment. And if I had to make a case, this is a patient that I would make. But fully understanding the approval is not in this setting. Now, how much I dislike the, the lines of therapy is probably shared by everyone. This is a patient I want to give it. The insurance does not approve because the patient does, did not have four prior lines of therapy.
1: Uh, Dr. Biren, how does early use change aspects such as bridging patient education or preparation for unique toxicities?
2: The earlier you use your CAR T-cell therapy, the less bulky disease, the less likely you're going to have rapidly evolving disease. And in those patients where you have more control of the disease and you're not likely to have a rapid symptom-bearing relapse, you may not need to use bridging. You have time. You can apherese in a controlled manner. And then, uh, ideally, you can uh, wait for the manufacturing of the CAR T cells without any bridging. And those patients are the ones who tend to do the best and have the best outcomes. And there's going to be a poster on Monday looking at the difference in outcomes among patients who received and did not receive bridging therapy. And you'll see the difference. So um, the earlier, the better, the less bulky the disease. And that's why, as you stated, right when you're on third line going into fourth line to start the process because it takes time to get insurance authorization a, a secure a slot and the other thing that we need to educate our community is that slot availability has increased significantly and during COVID we were really getting a lot of referrals and we couldn't treat patients because we were assigned one maybe two slots a month because of limitations in manufacturing, and now those problems are more or less resolved, and we have uh, as many slots as we need, and we really need to get our patients back in and um, referred and treated with these treatments as early as possible.
1: And I think we talked earlier briefly about some of the rapid manufacturing protocols that are being looked at, which seem to be able to get the manufacturing period down from weeks to days. And hopefully that would make the need for bridging therapy even lower, plus that would make it even more important to get folks referred earlier because the insurance process does take a little bit of time to accomplish. And we do have some time for an audience Q&A session. So I do have some questions that were sent in here from either you here in person or at home. And what I thought I'd do is answer the easy ones and give the hard ones to Dr. Nuka and Dr. Biran. Okay, well, let's start with Dr. Bearn. Any evidence to support sequencing between CD38 antibodies over lines of therapy? That's a good question.
2: You mean the CD38 antibodies in terms of uh, when to use them?
1: Where? I think they probably mean, is it okay to use in a consecutive line of therapy? Would you switch right. to so a different we, yeah. CD38? So
2: we know that... Um, It's probably not effective to switch without changing partners at uh, immediately when refractory to one CD38 antibody, but we have shown response when you wait, when there's a washout, meaning you use a CD38 antibody, they lose response, they may progress, Then you might wait a certain amount of time. That amount of time is not clearly delineated, but perhaps three to six months to allow for increased CD38 expression, and then switch partners. And by switching partners, I mean you can either switch CD38 monoclonal antibodies, or you can switch the backbone partner. So if the patient was on a PI, you switch to an IMID with a different monoclonal antibody, and we have certainly seen responses, or you can switch to a SLAM F7 with a different IMID. Um, we have used that in a, in a pinch, and it's worked.
1: Well, switching partners makes me think of line dancing down in Texas from where I am. Uh, Dr. Nuka, this is kind of an interesting one. Would you consider a bispecific antibody as a bridge to CAR-T? That's a cool question.
3: That's a great question. <laughs> And I
1: promise I didn't make that up.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought if you didn't say that. <laughs> it's a great question. So the the question again comes in so more of a logic than anything else. So how much of this BCM expression really matters for the real target is the biggest question. We don't know the answer. We assume we speculate. So my have we done it? Yes, we have done it. So my my thought process goes exactly the, the, the same way. If I have an alternate target, I would rather use an alternate target than a BCMA target bispecific antibody if I'm going for a BCMA target CAR T.
1: Yeah, and I guess my concern would be that you would maybe want to use a different bispecific because if you use, let's say you're going to plan on doing a BCMA CAR T, and you use a BCMA bispecific, there may still be free BCMA bispecific around to bind the target, which might prevent the CAR-T from recognizing it. And therefore, maybe you would want to go after a GPRC5D bispecific first, and then come in with your BCMA CAR-T. But that's something we don't know yet.
3: Or alternatively, the BCMA could mop off all the soluble BCMA So it will make the BCMA CAR-T more effective so that it can bound to the membrane right away.
1: Potentially. And actually, since you mentioned that, there are a couple of questions here about soluble BCMA. We covered that a little bit during the presentation. But one is, what about measuring soluble BCMA in patients with prior BCMA exposure? And a related one is, can we use soluble BCMA as a biomarker when selecting or sequencing between BCMA therapy?
3: It's always used as a prognostic marker. (laughs) So has it been used as a predictive marker? The answer is no.
1: Very good. Dr. Biran. would you consider Dara VRD light for elderly patients, even with diabetes? You did mention concern about diabetes and steroids earlier.
2: Um, I would tend to just use Dara Lendax. I think... Again, there's some debate regarding the high-risk subset in the transplant ineligible, if they need that proteasome inhibitor. I think if it was somebody who truly had double hit or triple hit, I would consider Dara Viardi-like.
1: Gotcha. And I think it depends on how robust the patient is as well. Uh, You probably don't want to give it to somebody who's coming in in a wheelchair, unless it's due to pain from myeloma fractures. Let's see, what else do we have here? Hmm. Okay, Dr. Nuka, do you foresee a time when CAR T might replace transplant for less fit or borderline transplant eligible patients?
3: That's a great question. I'm a believer in transplant and people who know me tell me like hearing from me about a patient that's transplant ineligible eligible is almost never happens. So so here, using CAR T in place of a transplant, if there is adequate data to show that it is safe and it is cost-effective, there is no reason why not. Same principles go for the CAR T. My oldest patient I gave a CAR T to was 87 years old. She has done well, and she's doing well.
1: Thank you. Uh, Dr. Biron, you covered a little bit about maintenance, so here's a maintenance question. Sounds very specific, so it might be about a patient that one of our providers has. If a patient has been flow negative for three years, but Clonaseq is one or two, would you allow the patient to take a break from maintenance, assuming they want to take a break, and continue monitoring by Clonaseq?
2: I would never have put the patient on maintenance to begin with, so you're asking the wrong person, but I think um, it would be reasonable to discontinue maintenance therapy with consecutive MRD-negative readings. In a patient who's had over three years, uh, much of the data shows that it is perfectly reasonable, and I think that the myeloma community in general is moving more towards fixed duration rather than continuous with use of mrd as a tool?
1: I guess uh, I would provide a slightly different opinion. It's just an opinion because we don't know for sure. I would probably think about break, yay or nay, based on risk. And if the patient had standard risk disease, I would feel much more comfortable about a treatment break in maintenance than if they had high risk disease. Uh, That's just from biology of the myeloma, but there's no data necessarily to push that one way or another.
3: The dramatic trial will answer that question.
1: I'm sorry? The the The,
3: dramatic trial with the Daryl and
1: MRT it. Hopefully, it'll it'll, it'll depend on how many high-risk patients we wind up enrolling as well. Um, So, but yes. All right, here's one question, Dr. Nuka. uh, We covered a little bit about this, but this is a little different. How do you mitigate infection risk if you are sequencing from CAR-T to bispecifics, and is there a targeted length of bispecifics because of the infectious issues, or do you just do until progression?
3: So I think the way that it was designed, so, The the mindset should should change in terms of our drug development. The way historically we had seen was maximal tolerated dose, so a maximal dose that is leading to the efficacy. So what it means is we start at a low dose and keep giving higher doses and higher doses until the time the patient is not able to tolerate that anymore, and you look at the efficacy at that dose. So now, the way that we should think with these immunological treatments is, what is the minimal effective dose? These are two different places. So what could be once weekly, BCMA-directed by a specific antibody, the minimal effective dose could be once monthly. We don't know the answer. We have not optimized on what the optimal schedule of these BCMA-directed therapies. That will answer a lot of questions from an infectious standpoint. So I think we have the enough tools. We probably need to work on how to optimize the tools that we have so that we could give them in a safer way and not having to worry about this infection potential. I, I hope you don't disagree with
1: that. No, and I, you know, we could even sort of speculate that maybe the optimal schedule will be different if you've got a CR versus if you've got a PR. Wow, well, I don't know. We'll see how things go. Uh, Dr. Biren, uh, sounds like another patient-specific question. May I treat a myeloma patient in CR who is having biochemical progression?
2: Then they're not in CR. If they meet the definition of biochemical progression, and we have very specific definition by IMWG of what constitutes progression of disease, which is 25% increase in paraproteins, M-spike of 0.5 grams, Above the nadir, uh, difference in the light chains by 100 milligram per liter or more, uh, urine uh, protein difference as well. Uh, so if a patient meets that definition, I would certainly switch therapy because you're not going to wait until you have an end organ symptom, and those definitions are made for a purpose. So I go by the IMWG definition.
1: Yeah, if I'm interpreting it correctly, maybe I should have. I I think the question is, uh, you know, symptomatic disease uh, we would all treat, but if it's just biochemical progression with no symptoms, would you continue what they're on or would you switch to something else? I would switch
2: when they meet the definition. If they're just slowly going up, I would increase monitoring. So instead of maybe every three months, I would monitor every four to six weeks. But once they hit that definition, I would change.
1: Okay. And one more question because we're almost at the end of time and because it happens to be the last question. Uh, Dr. Nuka, how long should a 71-year-old patient with three copies of 1Q be on Dara maintenance and we're told that they were transplanted in 2019? And I think their current M-spike is 0.16.
3: If so... One Q abnormalities by themselves, I do not believe, are considered as high-risk high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities. If they're present with another cytogenetic abnormality, absolutely it comforts uh, the high-risk nature to the to, to the disease. The patient is on maintenance, still there's a measurable M spike, not sure if this is IgG or measurable abnormal band from, from map. this is a patient I would definitely get MRD testing done to assess what the clonal copy numbers are so that potentially can allow us to get more information for proper decision making.
1: Very good. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both, Drs. Buren and Nuka, for what I think has been a great session.
0: This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Health Tree Foundation for Multiple Myeloma. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HZN860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from GSK, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC, and Sanofi.